2: Oh, yeah. By the sound of that, you know it's time for West of the Rockies right here on the Independent FM. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for singing around. I know it's late for some of you, but we got a really, really spooky show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing spooky. over there? What was that? Fine. Sorry? What? No,
0: what? I, I, I was doing the effects in the background. Really spooky that that's, I think that's generally something. what i do in the back when when someone's doing <laughs> i know a MVP, that's why I'm we like... don't take
2: you along anymore uh, i think <laughs> thanks for everyone all right <laughs> <laughs> thanks to everybody that's sending in tonight we really appreciate your support and uh, everyone listening to the podcasted version of the show good evening good afternoon good, good morning, good morning sir you. madam <laughs> and all that good stuff um tonight we have we had the chance to interview actually a really cool dude
0: this is one of few times we can say in it bonds. It's gonna be a great interview. It's gonna be a great and, and we we know it's gonna be great because no. we already did it.
2: Yeah, you know it's funny. The first time I heard about Barry Conrad was uh, a few years back. Uh, you know, browsing the internet, I came across a don't, documentary. Don't
0: tell them. Oh, okay, sorry.
2: <laughs> I came across a documentary on ghosts and hauntings, and uh, it was a type of documentary where they had a, a handful of uh, cases that mm-hmm. they presented, and uh, there was one case in there about this uh, small bungalow home in San Pedro, California. You know, about 20, 25 minutes away from where we are in in, uh, downtown L.A. And uh, it was such a strange case because it was a single mom with, you know, two infants. And uh, Mm -hmm. she was in this house where strange things were happening. So she gets in touch with uh, this team. And uh, Barry Conrad was a member of this team. He was the the cameraman. Mm -hmm. And along with a parapsychologist uh, by the name of Barry Taff and jeff wheatfield yeah the three of them went to this house to try and figure out what was happening right and it looks like as soon as the cameras started rolling things were happening right the bizarre
0: thing is i feel that even when the cameras weren't rolling Mm -hmm. there was really weird stuff happening so what the cameras did capture was still just a fraction of what they actually experienced. Yeah, That's y- the crazy part. You
2: know, and I remember that was a, a while back. Like I said, it was a few years ago. And I always remember that case, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe a year or two later, I came across the full length documentary just on the uh, San Pedro case. And that really blew my mind. Fast forward to, um, I think, about a week and a half ago. And uh, we were at our good friends uh, Ernie's house, who has a selection of books on these topics. And I saw that there was something About the San Pedro haunting case And I told them, hey, you know, I remember This, this actually was really interesting And I asked to borrow the book And, you know, I got in touch with Barry and he was uh, Down to do the show He is a very, very busy guy Always working on on different projects When you go to his IMDB You notice that he's actually done quite a few Projects based on paranormal Cases, Mm -hmm. and he focuses On the cases where they're, in his words Have substance, right, where there's more than one eyewitness where there's some kind of evidence and we talked to him about how he got involved and how he goes about capturing the this evidence you know and they've gotten you know balls of light and oh no I mean weird I, sounds like some footsteps of the stuff I've, and I've
0: watched in his documentaries etc is I'd mm-hmm. like to say some of the most convincing evidence I've seen and that's not even firsthand I mean that's third hand watching his documentaries
2: we definitely encourage people to check out Barry Conrad's work after the show so Genevieve if you would be so kind to uh introduce our guest for the night as we get ready to uh take a spooky stroll down the uh scary lane so grab your uh your pillow, your teddy bear, your significant other, uh, because this one's going to be a spooky one. Genevieve, if you would.
0: Tonight, we have Barry Conrad on the show. Barry is a cinematographer and producer who has served as director of photography in the television industry on a myriad of features to date, having commenced his broadcast career with Nick Clooney. That's George Clooney's father, for those of you who don't know. um, In Ohio, back in the 70s, Mr. Conrad is primarily known for the... TV shows California's Most Haunted, Monsters of the UFO, and Valentino's Ghost. From interviews with the world's top political leaders such as President Ronald Reagan, to icons such as Steven Spielberg, to the world's richest people such as Bill Gates, Barry Conrad's camera work really does span decades of diverse projects. For the past 20 years, he's not only shot but also produced several documentary features under the banner of his own. BarCon Video Productions. So with that, I'm very honored to be able to introduce Barry Conrad onto Westerl Rockies Radio.
2: Hey, Barry, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're quite a busy guy doing a a lot of work out here in LA and the surrounding areas. You have quite an extensive uh, list of credits. How did you get into this whole paranormal business and wanting to document it?
3: Yeah. Uh, originally, I, I grew up in Ohio, uh, southern Ohio, and uh, my mother uh, had a friend named Pauline, and um, there was a, a time when uh, she just bought uh, a brand new house. Actually, when I say brand new, it was an old farmhouse, actually, but she was renovating it. Mm-hmm. And they started having furniture move around. You know, they'd come home and Furniture be rearranged, and they'd smell strange odors like smoke. Yet there were no evidence of any fires or anything like that. And one night, her son almost jumped out of a window, said so he was being asphyxiated by, oh, wow. you know, like visible smoke. And that kind of impressed me, because she wound up moving out of the house. And I knew her because uh, she was a good friend of my mother's, as I mentioned. And she was not at all the type of person. To uh, fabricating and mean, this really kind of uh, restructured her creative processes and thinking along the lines of that kind of subject matter. I don't think she had any belief pattern whatsoever in the paranormal or anything like that. So I started reading more and more about the subject and I got interested in it. But I, again, I was just like, you know, you or I or anyone else that had never had experience, you know, would that ever happen to me? No, I never, never dreamed anything like that would happen to me. And what I ever encountered, and later I became a a cameraman, a professional cameraman. And uh, When I moved to L.A. in 1986, I met a gentleman named Dr. Barry Taff, and he was uh, a guy who uh, had set up a parapsychology lab at UCLA under the auspices of Dr. Thelma Moss, who wrote a book years ago called Probability of the Impossible, and I think they were doing ESP research Telekinetic research, but they uh, one of, one of the things that they were really fascinated with, with was the subject of haunted houses, you know, poltergeist phenomena, mm-hmm. and so that's really kind of what uh, actually how I got on the bandwagon with this because I realized he had been a researcher, and there was a movie that he had been involved with that he actually based his character on. It was called The Entity. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember that? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard the name of that movie before. What a scary case.
3: Yeah, he was involved with another fellow named Carrie Gaynor. They were investigating a small uh, bungalow over here in Culver City where a woman said she had been attacked and even raped by an invisible force. Wow. And, uh, and they made that movie about it, and that starred uh, Barbara Hershey, and it came out in 83. And, you know, I, you know, I wasn't at that case, but the little did I know that later on, we would become involved in a case very similar to that. Oh, there's no rape involved or anything like that. But it was a single woman, uh divorcee, you know, uh, with children mm-hmm. and uh, living under very similar circumstances, a small kind of, uh, you know, lower middle class home, bungalow, and uh, very similar circumstances started happening. And once that uh, case uh, got out, it was known as the San Pedro Haunting. That was my uh, tour de force of, uh, you know, as far as experiencing a plethora of phenomena that really convinced me that the phenomenon is real.
2: Let's talk about that for a moment, the the San Pedro haunting, because that's really how I became uh, uh, familiar with your work. This was a, a case that to this day you can go to YouTube and watch the videos, you can read the comments, and people are still perplexed by it, fascinated by it, scared by it. How did you guys meet Jackie Hernandez, and uh, how did that meeting come about? Did she reach out to you guys? Were you guys doing paranormal research, and, you know, did she look you guys up in the yellow pages? You know, how did that happen?
3: Yeah, well, frankly, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Barry Taff got the call first, and actually, it wasn't Jackie that called him. It was her friend, Susan Castaneda. She was a neighbor uh, and a friend that lived uh, near her, and she started seeing phenomena Mm-hmm. Like she saw a lamp fly off a shelf, you know, of its own volition. And uh, Jackie, I think at that time, uh, even though she was having incredible experiences, she uh, was a little bit nervous about calling anyone. She thought, you know, the, the usual thing back then. That li- like mm-hmm. right now, it's a lot more prevalent with all these TV shows and all these ghost telling groups that have sprung up over the past 10, 15 years. But back then, it was a little more dicey, you know, people... Uh, were a little more reticent about calling people because they didn't want to be labeled a kook or, uh, you know, psychologically deluded or something like that. And so that's how we got on the bandwagon of that. Uh, Barry called me in, and, you know, he knew that my objective was, you know, as a cameraman, I thought, well, you know, it's one thing to hear these stories. So i did a, little, a number of cases uh, with him even before uh, San Pedro where we heard a lot of really good stories from people who had these experiences. Mm-hmm. But while I, you know, there are nothing wrong with the, uh, experiences they were talking about, but I wanted to see something from myself. And I also wanted to, uh, document it from a cameraman standpoint. And I thought, well, I got quite a bit of news experience. I was a news cameraman, uh, at ABC and NBC in Denver. And, uh, Starting in Cincinnati, I used to work with George Clooney's father. I was a stats cameraman in the 70s. And, you know, when you are when you do news, you're trained to get the story. Right. And I thought, okay, well, you know, as a news camera guy, I have that background. I was a journalism major in, in uh, college. I went to Miami University in Oxford. And uh, taking a journalistic approach, taking a cameraman's approach, I wanted to try and see if we could get some kind of empirical evidence, you know, on video. And indeed, in the San Pedro case... We got more than we bargained for for
2: sure. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, that honestly is an understatement uh, when you look at the amount of video that you guys capture while there. Now, one of the interesting things about this case is the the level of activity. I mean, you really don't hear too much about a poltergeist-like phenomena very often, and I was surprised that this would happen in a, a small little suburb like San Pedro. What was it about this house? Was the house haunted? Was Jackie herself the one that was haunted? If you will, the one that was being followed around, what was going on? Who were the entities that were causing all this trouble?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, Frank. You know, it's gone through my mind. I know Dr. Taff has addressed this a bit. You know, he he was under the impression that maybe that perhaps it was her that was haunted that was maybe, uh, you know, creating the phenomena or something mm-hmm. like that, because there's an old... Uh, I guess, theory among a lot of parapsychologists, it's called the RSPK, Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinetic Theory, that a lot of phenomena is generated by uh, the sort of hidden consciousness within the mind itself. And a lot of times, they believe that. And I'm not denying this; it could happen, perhaps it does happen with you know, in a number of cases that in a the case of a tubescent young girl, and usually it is a young girl, in a lot of the cases there is a lot of uh, random I would call it more random psychokinetic phenomenon. Maybe mm. an object falls over or a table slightly moves, something oh, wow. like that. So the theory is that, you know, perhaps there is a little bit of uh, hormonal energy being mm-hmm. given out and it somehow operates on a psychokinetic basis, a physical level. I don't Think after experiencing the San Pedro case firsthand, I don't really think that was the case because even long after Jackie had moved out, yes, uh let me think. Back in two thousand four, because she moved out in eighty nine, there was still phenomena going on, and there was a family named the lona family mm-hmm. that moved out because they had encountered unseen forces in that house. Yeah, when I went back to be interviewed by a reporter, uh, we went up into the attic and. uh well, we had so many other phenomena happen originally, and mm-hmm. the cameraman's uh, camera jam. Of course, that could have been a mechanical error or something, but there were also photographs that I took outside the house in broad daylight where we picked up these kind of uh, misty-looking objects moving outside of the house in uh, broad daylight, I, which I think was very interesting. And it, when I came back to my home at the time, there was a couple photographs I had taken like a day after that, just around the house, it was a Halloween season, I'm just taking mm-hmm. some random pictures. And I picked up a very bright comet of light streaking across the living room area. So it's convinced me that, at least that case convinced me that this was something under intelligence design. And it was still operating in the house as of 2004. Nowadays, I don't know, but back then, I, I, I hardly believe that that a phenomenon that was generated by an individual, even long after that individual has gone, would still have been in the house.
0: Could you maybe tell us a little about the connections that, you know, were made, for instance, Damon, who seems to be someone they found um, had maybe died there years before?
3: Oh, right, right. Well, you know, uh, when you asked about San Pedro earlier, Frank, there there is a lot of history to San Pedro Mm -hmm. as far as uh, it had a very bad reputation back in the, at the turn of the century, especially in the 30s during the depression years, there is a street down there called Beacon Street, and that was uh, kind of the center for prostitution, brothels, and bars and saloons. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of killings and murders, homicides, that kind of thing. So it is a seedy area. There are parts of it. If you go down there, I even mean, in 89, even today, I think, you know, if you're uh, susceptible to energy, and you go into that town, you sort of get a feeling, you know, like when you go to an mm-hmm. old town, you just pick up on that energy. And that town it reeks with kind of a kind of a sordidness about it. There's a lot of acquaintance about that, Peter. You got a, a nice area down there. You got the harbor, and you got, uh, you know, you got the area. We got the cruise ships and all that cruise mm-hmm. lines. But there is a there's a history of that town. Now, you would ask about um, Genevieve. You would ask about John mm-hmm. Damon. Well. When we did some research, we did find out that there was uh, a man named mm-hmm. John Gaiman that was the first owner of the house. The house built in nineteen hundred and five, okay. and he did die in the house. I don't have any evidence that he died of any kind of, uh, you know, trauma or mm-hmm. homicide or anything like that. I think he died of natural causes. But there was an interesting uh, bit of phenomena that happened with Jackie. She was over at Susan's house, and Susan lived right next door to a cemetery. I believe it was off the 23rd to 22nd Street. It's called the Harborview Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And one day uh, they had called me and they said that they had seen a ball of light and that the ball of light had uh, floated uh, within this bedroom, Susan's bedroom, and they saw it. This was in daylight. Mm-hmm. Flew out of the window, and they went out of the house and followed it into Harborview Cemetery. And the object had you know, hovered over this certain grave and it was the gravesite site of this gentleman named John Damon. I believe he died in 1912. Mm-hmm. And when I did research, I don't think they knew it at the time, but after I did a title search of the house, it was really interesting because John Damon was the first owner of that very house at, wow. on 11th Street. 593 West 11th Street, where this all took place. No, that's fascinating. (laughs) Whether to say John was the one haunting it, it's hard to say, because there were other voices heard of a woman. I even heard disembodied voices of a woman one night, and a man sounded like they were arguing. These voices were disembodied coming from the attic itself. So I don't know. I don't know there could have been more involvement, because... There was a lot of history to that house, I'm sure, because it was, you know, again, it was in a neighborhood where a lot of seamen had lived. I'm sure a lot of low-life types had been involved uh, in that neighborhood uh, operating that one time. So, Mm -hmm. very interesting stuff, though, the Um, John Damon incident.
0: Am I correct in remembering as well um, that there were a lot of occurrences of burning smells or, you know, physical combustion, and that was somehow connected to a building burning down in that same spot?
3: No. Uh, I don't remember that the burning thing but it wasn't the very first night August 8 89 when we walked in that house there was a very strong overpowering smell of iodine okay and it was coming from the laundry room and if you go above the laundry room we had this little uh crawl space door uh, entrance to the attic and it was very very strong and all of a sudden it just dissipated there was um after she moved this entity, it followed Jackie. And there was an incident where a, a blanket or a bedspread or something had been burned. Mm-hmm. And when they, when you look at the burn marks, it looks like two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was kind of scary. So they did smell smoke in that place. Maybe that's what you're thinking about. But, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the original house, iodine. And that was interesting because iodine is a byproduct of kelp. And okay. Where does kelp come from? Kelp comes mm-hmm. from the ocean. Yeah. Again, there's that sea kind of element or link to this whole thing. It's really interesting.
0: In that case, could you just tell us a little about some of the happenings in her next home, which seem to have hinted, or well, not just hinted, pointed to a specific person or two people during a, a Ouija board incident.
3: Well, after she moved out of the house, it had originally had hanged my soundman in the attic in mm-hmm. the. Uh, in the, in the original house, and then she moved out of the house, and she moved to a place called Weldon. She had gotten back temporarily, briefly, with her ex-husband. His name was Al, and he got her up to a, a trailer home, which is 300 miles north, up by um, a little little town called Weldon, but she was in a, on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and it was a very, very isolated remote area. It was called Chucker Street, C-H-U-K-K-A-R. And this one all happened in 89. Uh, she moved out in the fall. And then we thought, you know, Jeff and I, Jeff was the other researcher who had been uh, attacked a number of times. That was the most, you know, amazing thing that happened during that whole case. Uh, he was an extreme skeptic before that. Well, I had called him about going up to Weldon because, uh, Lo and behold, I, I started getting calls from Jackie, and she said that this ghost is solider. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, I didn't know whether to believe that or not. At the time, I thought, well, maybe she's had some kind of uh, PTSD or something, you know. And yeah. But he he was very good sport about it because this was five down the road, and he agreed to go up there, and we went up there to weld them on. Believe it or not, we didn't plan it that way, but it was Friday the 13th, April 13th, 1990 and we got up there kind of late. We had been working earlier that day, and we went up, and it was around 11 o'clock, and we interviewed a gentleman named, I can't think of his name offhand, but he lived next door, Mm -hmm. um, and he and his wife had reported seeing an apparition of an old man, which was the same thing that Jackie had seen at the original house in San Pedro. And so we were talking to him, and we had a camera set up behind the home, focused in on a little story shed because Jeff had seen a shadow moving through the shed right when we first got there. And she said this entity was coming through a Ouija board and this kind of a no-no in a lot of uh, ghost terms because a lot of people are afraid to use it. But uh, at that time, I thought, well, I really didn't know a lot about Ouija boards, but I thought, well, if it's communicating with her, I wanted to see something for myself. and uh, Yeah. So we, we sat down, Jeff, just Jeff and I, and then there was a babysitter uh, and then Tina, she stood there in the room and uh, was watching all this, and Jackie sat to our left, and unfortunately our camera equipment was uh, neutralized, which happened up in the attic the very first night. It's a Pedro. So all of our equipment was knocked out, but it was too bad because we got a lot of things. I did pick up a, a, AC, you know, a bullet of light shooting into the shed mm-hmm. just before the Ouija board section, and and right away, the room got cold, the temperature dropped maybe 25, 30 degrees, and the table started shaking violently, and it started communicating with us. And it communicated all sorts of things. said it was a ghost, that he was murdered, held underwater in 1930 mm-hmm. in uh, Peter Bay, and he said, he, uh, we asked, how did he die? And he said, uh, held underwater. And I asked it, uh, did you drown? And it said no. Mm-hmm. Again, cable was bouncing up and down, and and then it would settle, and it said murder, M-U-R-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at one point, he said he was full of hatred. He was uh, not at rest. He said, I must grieve always. I'm mm-hmm. doomed to wander. And I asked him how many ghosts reside among the earth, and he said, phantoms, fill the skies around you. And I asked him if there was anyone there that he hated, and it spelled out J E F F, Jeff's name. And wow. at that point, he Jeff was levitated in front of me and two other witnesses, and he was hurtled into the ceiling where the wall, actually the wall where the wall meets the ceiling, and it mm-hmm. happened just as if he were hit by lightning. And that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Fortunately, he survived, <laughs> but he he survived. He was uh, he was dazed. He was. Uh, knocked out for a few minutes, and he yeah, came to But I've never seen like that. It was, it was such power. Mm-hmm. And the candles on the table were going out one by one, and she relighted them, and they would be reignited one by one. And it did that five, six, seven, eight times, oh, something like that. You're like you're living in a horror movie, but you're seeing it for real, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: No, it sounds like it. Uh, I wanted to go back to the uh, San Pedro house for a bit because uh, a lot of things happening in there. And speaking of Jeff, you mentioned that he was hung in the attic. you literally hung by his neck in the attic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was a really perplexing and scary uh, moment that happened there. When you watch the video, you can just see it, and his like all the color is drained from his face as he's coming down, and he has this strange wire with a, a funny knot. Can you tell us a little bit how that event went down?
3: That's right. It was a really scary night. It was on September 4th, 89, and what happened was Um, Jeff and another friend of mine named Gary Bain, Gary and I had gone to school together in Ohio. He was working with me part time out here. And of course, Jeff helped me out with audio and lighting and stuff for Mm -hmm. a video company. And we happened to be together that night and we got this incredible call from Jackie Hernandez, which I recorded. And if you watch the documentary, an unknown encounter, you can hear that actual audio recording. And Jackie, uh, was calling and she said, Oh my gosh, you know, uh, All hell was breaking was, she said, the kids' toys levitated. The door was opening and closing, slamming. Uh, A refrigerator opened and a soft drink hurtled out of the refrigerator and hit her in the head. (laughs) And she had been held down on the floor the night before, and she said that there was this invisible power. That held her down the floor and she couldn't breathe. And if it wasn't for the children being there, that that you know the will to live for her children, she doesn't think she would have survived it. But she was able to break out of that energy state. Mm-hmm. And there was another uh, night uh, not long before that where she said that there was uh, she was taking a bath and that there were luminous balls of light, reddish color lights, and they were mm-hmm. floating around her underwater while she was bathing. So, all of these things sort of coalesced into this one night, September 4th, and all these things were happening. So, Jeff and Gary and I decided we're going to go down and and check it out for ourselves. And I grabbed my video equipment and we went down there. And at that time, she had her children out on the front porch to protect them. I think she had a very small little girl that had baby daughter, Mm -hmm. Samantha, and she was uh, sleeping in a little bassinet thing. And Jamie, was he also was bundled up on the front porch sleeping. And Jeff and Gary decided to go check out the uh, attic. But when we got there, uh, uh, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was very, very quiet. I mean, it was very tranquil. There was no, nothing going on. And uh, I stayed down. I was talking with Jackie. I had the camera equipment there. um Hadn't turned it on at that point. We had shot an interview with Jackie, but then uh, back then the cameras were a lot bigger and he sucked up batteries a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of sort of waiting, you know, to see if anything would happen and not thinking anything would happen at that point because it was so quiet. And Jackie was soon joined by her neighbor, who she had called earlier, Susan, who we mentioned earlier, who had, you know, actually seen a lamp fly across the room. They'd also heard a lot of uh, activity, like strange noises in the attic and so forth. And they were up there maybe 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, and uh, down below where I was with Jackie and Susan, I noticed a, a reddish-colored light, and it came across the attic crawl space and disappeared. Uh, it moved very quickly. And then to my left, I felt like I was being watched by something, and there was an open bathroom mm-hmm. there, and uh didn't see anything, but you felt like you were being watched. And then all of a sudden I got this feeling like something was about to happen and and then Susan, Jackie, and I all three of us heard a snapping sound. It sounded like three finger snaps. Just like you or I would do it, you know, just like this, like three three snaps. Right, right. And right at that point I turned the camera on. I was yelling for those guys to come down. I said there's stuff going on down here. And Gary approached the opening and Jeff was in the middle of the attic somewhere and he had a flashlight when we went up there. I had given Gary a little point and shoot camera just in case anything would happen. And all of a sudden, as soon as I turned the camera on, we heard a, a groan, like, oh, like that groan, mm-hmm. loud groan. And Gary turned and said, Are you okay? And there's no response from Jeff. And he flashed his camera because it was so dark up there because uh, Jeff's camera, or I'm sorry, Jeff's flashlight. Had hit the floor and went out. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, fortunately, he got, was able to see where Jeff was. And he also got a couple of amazing photographs because he found Jeff, uh, he, his legs were wrapped around a two by four, kind of on about a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. And his neck was pulled up close to a, a nail, which was, uh, protruding from one of the trusses, you know, one of those two by fours. Right. And, and when he got over to him, he gets, you know, Jeff was just out of it, and he found a rope around Jeff's neck. And it was an old weathered clothesline cord, mm-hmm. twisted multiple times, tied in a bowline knot. None of us knew about knots at the time. Wow. And he had to bend the nail down and slip that knot off of the nail to get Jeff down. And, of course, Jeff still got the rope around his neck, and he's, he panics, he's crawling. Mm-hmm. And I have video camera rolling. Not Really, uh, when you see that footage in Unknown Encounter, I'm not, I'm not aware of what I'm about to film. When we first heard the groan, we thought, well, maybe it was uh, his camera being pulled out of his hands, or maybe he was pushed because the very first night we were there, he had a mm-hmm. camera pulled out of his hands, and he was pushed by something unseen. It felt like a large, bony hand. But this was something amazing uh, because something had come out of the darkness of the attic, had attacked him in a blinding second and had a rope around his neck and had him and had it twisted around the nail and, and and just happened that quickly. So when he comes down, you see the the terror etched into his face, you see the look right. of astonishment. And you can still see that cord. And I interviewed him right then and there after when it happened. And of course you can see the cord and you could see some burn marks in his neck. And he was concerned at that point where his glasses were. He just bought a brand new pair of glasses that day. And they went flying off of him, I guess, at that moment of the assault. He also said something interesting. He said that when he came to on the rafter, that he felt something tugging on his leg, like it was trying to strangle him to death, you know, like apply pressure. Yeah, And it was really uh, an unforgettable night. It really was because, you know, here's a man that could very easily have been killed up there if, mm-hmm. if Gary hadn't had pulled him down at that moment. Yeah. And people say, do you have any kind of evidence? Because, you know, none of us saw, saw mm-hmm. him actually being hanged in the process of that. But I believe I do, because uh, when we got back and looked at the videotapes, I started seeing these little pops of light, and they're all over the videotapes. I, I have three or four of them really put out lights. And you can see one buzzing over the top of Jeff's head, one coming behind the doorway, uh, one moving across the, the kitchen the area. Mm-hmm. And they're self-luminescent lights. They're emitting their own light. And then, so yes, we do have it. And later on, by the way, that same night, uh, we were on the porch getting ready to leave. And Jackie noticed that her baby daughter's forehead had a blood streak, like an imprint of it looked like blood. Uh, coming off of the forehead and when we uh, I have this on camera I zoomed in I could see the baby was fine but it was almost like something had taken a thumbprint of blood and, and, and pressed it but fortunately the baby was okay you know, there was nothing harmful that happened to it other than that that smudge you know on the forehead but but what a night what a night what can I tell you it, it, you know it was a scenario that no, script writer could uh, duplicate and Mm. this one was for real
0: yeah and with the cord wrapped around his neck there seems to have been that connection to the sea and sailing again because it it was a specific type of sailor's knot right
3: that's right that's right and none of us knew anything about knots Mm -hmm. and later on i took that old weathered seaman's cord that old clothesline cord rather i took it to uh, a man by the name of Luke Coolidge was his name. He was he was like maybe he was late eighties. He'd been you know working as a seaman all his life, like a mm-hmm. longshoreman type guy. And he confirmed that that was indeed uh, a bowline knot. It was a, definitely a seaman's knot used on ships, probably more than anywhere else in the world. Wow. And uh, it's a knot that doesn't slip. So it was a very dangerous knot. Jeff mm-hmm. could have very easily have panicked. At that moment, and if he had not, if Gary had not been there, I should say, he could have struggled struggled and he could have very easily strangled there right on that rafter
2: that night. Uh, Barry, one of the things that caught my attention, you made reference to it just a, a few minutes ago, is the little orbs of light flying around. You have worked with video equipment for many years now. How do you know that these orbs are not just, you know, a um, malfunction in the equipment or a bug that flew in front of your lens? What are the characteristics of these little orbs of light that let you know that it was nothing that could be explained as a malfunction or a bug or any of those things?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question, Frank, because I wanted to know myself. And what we did was I, I got a hold of Keith Dovery at the time. He was a, a, a real respect, well-known, respected entomologist. Mm-hmm. I first thought, well, is this some kind of a firefly or a bug or something? He analyzed the footage that I had. I had multiple uh, orbs of these lights. And he said, "Well, they're not bugs because of the way they move. The trajectories were too smooth, you know, the way they move." Because he said most insects are more erratic, kind mm. of in their flight paths, you know. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he did he did point out the fact that you no know, fireflies are indigenous to Southern California. Now, I, I grew up in. Southern Ohio, we used to uh, put fireflies in in milk jar or milk bottles and things like that, and make make lanterns, you know, <laughs> things like that. And mm-hmm. and they have a more of a fireflies have more of a pulsing kind of glow, uh, you know, on and off, and. I also was lucky enough to get Dr. James Robin, who was one of the top aerospace physicists with Rockwell International at that time. He spent two or three weeks analyzing all of the original tapes that I had mm-hmm. and looked at the lights. And he went on national television at the time, a show called Current Affair, I remember. And uh, he, uh, he vetted the lights and talked about the fact that they were... Self-luminescent lights, and again, the speeds were very, very fast, and uh, that may be why we didn't see them because they move so fast. Right, and, and uh, you know they were glowing. Not all of them, I would say, were all that bright, but some of them, most of them, were very bright. I also had in a uh, another location where Jackie moved an incredible series of lights that are moving all around Jackie's head. And you can see this one I call it the peapod like like because it comes in, it looks like it has three appendages. It's whitish, bright white in color, it comes in again looking like a peapod, dematerializes for one frame. It, it's it's you know, you can see it materially for one or two frames and disappears for a frame, rematerializes in the fourth or fifth frame, and then continues traversing out of the frame and then you could see all of these little sharp bright white lights uh moving all around jackie even going into her head and that was that was in one scene in one location and it was in broad daylight it wasn't even at night it was in bright broad daylight which was really phenomenal but again we were vetted by entomologists, and uh dr robin was very very uh kind and uh his analysis and, and uh, wasn't kind. I mean, he took the time to do it on his own, mm-hmm. uh, was not paid anything to do this. No people were paid anything. And uh, I just wanted to find out, as a journalist would go through all this stuff, this data, and find out if there was some kind of, uh, you know, rational explanation for it. There was one light in particular. Uh, I didn't see it with the naked eye. Again, a lot of times you did not see them with the naked eye most of the time. -hmm. And there was a a gate in the morning. There was this gate, and it it was a waffle kind of gate. It used to be there on the side of the house. It's not there now, but uh, because I've been back in recent years, it's no longer there. But the gate started opening and closing by itself, and there was absolutely no breeze, no wind at all. And as I walked over, I got the thing opening and closing in very close up shots. And when we look back on the video, you see this bright orange a beam of light coming across. It almost looks like it has some kind of a mass to it, physical mass to it. Mm-hmm. And and it comes across. As it comes across, the gate opens and closes. Wow. So, again, there seemed to be a correlation between these light and physical psychokinetic phenomena. Like, for instance, the hanging and, and right. other things that were phenomenal. The night of the Ouija board, we did not, uh, our cameras were knocked out. But just prior to that, we picked up an amazing light flying into the storage shed, very large greenish-orange object flying into that shed.
2: I remember uh, watching the um, piece of footage with the gate, and, yeah, I mean, this thing is literally swinging back and forth on its own. It, it, it was really astounding to watch. Speaking of analysis and data, there was another incident that happened in the San Pedro house that I I find totally, I mean, it baffles me. And that's the, it was like this liquid that was coming through the walls and the cabinets, and uh, it almost reminded me of Ectoplasm from the Ghostbuster uh, movies. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I know you guys collected some of this and sent it off to get analyzed, and the results were quite interesting, to say the least
3: that was uh, you know maybe beyond anything else that was really bizarre because that happened on august 28th and it was an interesting night because we had a lot of researchers there that night there were other people that came out by this time word of mouth that gotten around this was before the hanging incident actually but it was the first night we went there we had a lot of phenomena happen and uh word of mouth through a lot of dr task friends Got around and and I remember it was almost like a party that night. It was really weird because I walked in there, there was all these people. There was a guy named. Um uh well, I can't think of the gentleman's name now, but he brought in what they call a Kohu camera from San Diego, which shot you know, in, in the IR realm, you know, with an infrared camera. Uh, another guy brought a, a thermal vision unit, and that was rare to see that back in 1989. you know, you just you see a lot of that now, but not back then mm-hmm. you didn't see so much of that. And all these people were around, people were chatting about it. And, you know and, and, and there was absolutely nothing happening. nothing was going on. Um, until, you know, it was a, probably like three or four o'clock in the morning. By that time, every uh, most of the people had weeded out of the place and mm-hmm. had left and there were like a handful of us there. It was uh, Jeff and I, a fellow named Robert Moss was there and um, Jackie, of course, Susan, I remember them the being there. And I believe it was Jackie or Susan, they suddenly pointed to the, the wall cabinet. It was a wall cabinet mm-hmm. right there in the, uh, in the living, right before you go into the kitchen. And in the wall cabinet, there was this liquid slime that started, like the, the walls were sweating This stuff. It was like dripping, right. was dripping, like a fluorescent orange, yellowish color to it. And I had the video camera rolling. Uh, I mean, I turned it on really rather quickly, and uh, Jeff's got a flashlight on it, and I walked over there and, Zoomed in on it, and it was the stuff just kind of dripping and oozing up through the cracks of the of the of the wall cabinet, and actually some of the, the weren't even cracks; it was just a smooth painted surface. And again, it was like the walls were sweating this stuff. And I know there was another incident; I'm not sure if it was the same night or not, but I know it was coming up out of the floorboards back in the uh, hallway. Uh, there was a little uh, bathroom there, and uh, there was a hallway outside of that bathroom, like a small... Actually, not a hallway, a closet area, and it was coming up out of the floorboards. And, and again, we couldn't find a source for that. Dr. Taft had a friend at UCLA that moonlighted for us uh, and did a little bit of lab research and, and did an analysis. And, uh, and I remember Taft calling me and telling me over the phone that what they'd found... Uh, was that this liquid was, was some kind of human blood plasma with mm-hmm. a heavy iodine and copper uh, element to it, which is interesting because oh, yeah. we smelled that iodine the first night, so it of mm-hmm. tied in with the iodine smell. And I'm not sure why the iodine smell would have been there or even part of that, that blood plasma, but it was, uh, I believe he determined it to be from an older male, I believe, mm-hmm. I believe that's what he said, but that was really eerie, and I know Jackie had described seeing the stuff kind of appear on uh, the outside of other cabinets in the kitchen and on the outside of drinking glasses and things like that. And uh, this time, we got a sample of it that he had taken to uh, a lab near UCLA, and that was really bizarre.
2: Have you heard of this happening anywhere else to anybody else?
3: <laughs> I had heard of it happening. The only other case that comes to mind was, and it's a controversial case because some people are very critical of the mm-hmm. case, but it was the original Amityville Horror House. And that place was supposedly haunted. I know a lot of people said it was a, a hoax, but I don't know. I think there's a fine line between hoax and reality sometimes in these cases. That uh, You know, I, I, I know that uh, the, 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 there was a, a couple named Edmarine Warren I believe they're the ones that reported uh, that they had seen a slime there. Mm-hmm. And the family reported it. I'm not sure if any samples were taken. I assume there were. I'm not sure. But I don't know that that was human blood plasma. But I do know them reporting seeing like a blood-like substance uh, coming out of the walls of that house. And there are other instances where poltergeists will generate water in liquids and things of that nature. Uh, there was, a, there was a, even in the, uh, the San Pedro case, before we arrived on the scene, there was a uh, report by Jackie. She said she was walking from the living room into the kitchen right near where that wall cabinet was. There was an electrical light switch. Mm-hmm. And she said that water just started pouring out wow. of the light switch. Oh, wow. Yet the light, light switch worked fine, but yet there was water Pouring out of it, you think it would have shorted out or something? You know, right? right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I was going to say, you know, I've joined a few um, ghost investigations in the past, and one of my worries is always that I may take something home with me. Something might end up attaching itself to me and haunting me or my home. Um, what are your thoughts on that and past experiences with that?
3: That's a good question. It'd be really great question. I, mm-hmm. I at the time when I first got involved in that case. And in any other case prior to that, yeah. I didn't know anything about ghosts following you or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, this ghost became a Have Ghosts Will Travel story. Indeed it did. Because we even believe that perhaps the first night we were there, that was the night Jeff went up in the attic had his camera pulled out of his hands. We had lights go on and off in the house. Uh, he had taken or his role of film uh, we had left and went down to Hollywood to get something to eat. It was late at night, and he took it and put it into a one of those overnight slots at a photo lab called Allen's uh, Custom Photos down mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And the next day, they didn't know where the film was, because we wanted to find out if, you know, if he got anything on his pictures yeah. on the first night. Mm-hmm. And they found uh, eventually found the roll film all the way on the other side of the building, lying in the middle of the lab floor, oh, and none wow. of them had put it there. Also, to make it even more, uh, pronounced than that, in, in the summer of 1990, or actually before this, even, I mean, Jackie went up to Weldon and she was followed up there. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, we saw it levitate a guy in front of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew what had happened up there. And then during, uh, the summer of 1990, I had, at that time, I had an apartment in Studio City, uh, Tujunga Avenue. It was at 4285 Tahunga Avenue, right here. Mm-hmm. By Telos Restaurant, where all the uh, rubber blake thing happened, it was really close to that by by coincidence. Okay. But the uh, burners on my stove started coming on by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, it was the right front gas burner. You turn it off, you walk out of a room, come back in, burner be back on. It would play all these kinds of games with you. It would impale knives in the floor. Oh, it wow. turned flashlights on. You know, like it would put the flashlight on the floor, turn it on you'd hear heavy breathing sound. So I mm-hmm. knew I was being followed by it. And that culminated with a incredible night of December 4, on December 4th, 1990. We had 46 poltergeist events witnessed by myself and Gary and Jeff. We had come back from a job, mm-hmm. and we had all these things happening at one time. We had the, the, the burners come on. It set a fire to an envelope, um, and we had to put the fire out. Uh, it threw bullets onto the stove.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, the flashlight, like I mentioned, was put onto the floor and turned on. Just all these little psychokinetic things happen. It would do, it would do things like you know if you'd open your refrigerator. Let's say you have condiments in the refrigerator, like mayonnaise and. Mustard. It would take the bottles and turn them upside down. It mm-hmm. would go into the bathroom and turn the shampoo bottles upside down. Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. all little little hash marks that it was there. You know that it was visiting you. And um, and there was a there was a point where I didn't see it, but I just walked out of the room. And this thing appeared to uh, Jeff and Gary. They saw this uh, this like human like slab of light that appeared, and it. It appeared just for seconds, and it, it appeared floating in the middle of the room, and it floated through the uh, through the wall into the bedroom. And when we, when we went into the bedroom later on to see if there was anything in there, we didn't see this lab of light, but we were pelted with coins and objects and things that came wow. out of nowhere. Wow. Can they follow you? Mm. Yes, they can. Yeah, and yes, I was
0: going to say it's incredible that you actually um, caught some of this on camera, the incidents with, you know, the um, the scissors in the kitchen and the fire coming on and at one point even finding a pack of matches on the stove, I believe.
3: Uh, well, what it, was, what it did was we were just walking out of the room because we knew the entity was there. We tried to stay together. We were walking out of the room. We'd go from room to room and with the camera rolling. And just behind me, it was always usually just out of sight because it was always very much wanting to be mischievous and play these games with you. And just be one step ahead of you. Yeah. We heard this loud crash and we turned the camera around quickly. I turned the camera behind me and they had taken a, a box of 22 caliber uh, bullets. And mm-hmm. uh, these are bullets. Uh, there was no mystery to the bullets. I owned the bullets. I had, I had a, a 22 rifle for uh, protection because we had a number of break-ins in that mm-hmm. apartment complex uh, last few months, but I had a rifle. I kept it. In the bedroom, in the corner, and I had a uh, little box of 22 shells, and they mm-hmm. were put away in a drawer. And uh, gun was not loaded or anything, but the, it taken. This entity had taken that little box of bullets and had slammed them down onto the right front burner. But fortunately, the burner was not turned on at that moment. But then the bullets went flying out of. Uh, out of the box and were, were scattered all over the floor. And I remember the first thing Jeff said, boy, we better get these bullets off that stove and off the floor. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who knows what this thing would do next, you know? Yeah.
2: I wanted to ask you about, obviously this thing was in, in your apartment doing all of these things. How did you get rid of it? Did you cleanse it? Did you move? But uh, what happened?
3: Well, I, I didn't cleanse it. I, at that time, I really didn't... Uh, no too many psychics that were available although there was one there was one lady that professed to be a psychic her name was Barbara but um, and I, she may have come over once maybe and sage the place mm-hmm. but it didn't have much of an effect we still got a lot of activity it never would do anything when she came over mm-hmm. but when you, it was more of a hit and run guys. when I mean hit and run um, one night like I, I, I woke up and, you know, a window had shattered. And then that was it, you know, mm-hmm. it nothing happened to that. And and you'd come home safe from work and you'd have a number of things that would happen. Burners would come on, these, this kind of thing. Or would put a cord that stone up on a, on top of a lampshade, something like that. Or you might hear the breathing and things of that nature. But then it would stop. Uh, it, it would usually do things uh, later in the evening, end of the wee hours, but then it would stop. And usually by morning, you'd have no activity. That wasn't always true. Most of the time, that's the way it worked. Uh, I do remember being frightened by it. I remember I was scared because, you know, this was after the hanging incident. I thought, well, if I can hang a guy, what's it going to do to me next? You know, fortunately, it never harmed me. Uh, I really was respectful that I didn't do that. Um, But I remember many nights sleeping on the floor by the front door, thinking I was going to have to make a quick escape, you know, from... uh, the phenomena, because you didn't know, you didn't really didn't know how violent this thing could be right, at that right. point. But uh, again, I didn't know uh, too many people in the psychic world at that time. Now, now I do. Real more people. I would have tried to bring in more people today and and more uh, witnesses and so forth. But it was scary. and It was really frightening, but it, it, it did follow us for sure.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very frightening uh, uh, to say the least. Now, the, my next question or my next couple of questions m- might be a, a bit more on the technical side. Obviously, you have work with cameras and, and you've seen the transition we have made from tapes to um, digital mediums like, you know, the SD cards, you know, recording everything on digital cameras. Have you noticed a difference in how you capture this type of paranormal evidence? Do you see less paranormal phenomena that, that gets captured is it about the same or uh, how do you see it
3: you know actually i i think i'm seeing more today more out there being captured mm. because the big difference you know back at the time in 1989 uh from cameras then as today uh well from a broadcast standpoint i was doing more broadcast work. We had a, a format back then called three-quarter-inch video, mm-hmm. and the problem with that was that the batteries wouldn't last that long. You might, you know, if you're lucky, you might get 20, 25 minutes out of a battery. And not only that, the tapes were only 20 minutes in length. Oh, wow. You know, they, they were they were kind of big, and mm-hmm. you had a deck. You had to put the, can- the tape into a deck, and then the tech had an umbilical cable that ran up to the camera and that made it a little more cumbersome you know they were bigger they were bulkier today it's amazing because you got all this digital technology you can run you could take an sd card and put it into a camera and depending on the you know like say if you have a 64 gigabyte sd card you can run for four to six hours right. depending on uh, frame rate and many um, megabytes per second you're recording that so today it's amazing i wish i had that back then because we let. Been able to let, set up more cameras and let more cameras roll continuously. Uh, back then, you're, I, I remember thinking, well, I've just got this one camera, and I'm thinking, boy, I've got to preserve that camera power. What if something starts happening? Right. You know, and, all, <laughs> and all of a sudden, my juice runs out, you know, or my tape runs out, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you could switch tapes, but you know, it took a little while; it wasn't instant. You'd have to load it up and put it in, it has to thread up, and. So I, I, I'm amazed today. I, one of the things about today, too, is that compared to film, you know, film was more costly to shoot back then Right. in uh, still cameras. But uh, today you can shoot, like, again, with a digital uh, card, a SD card or a compact flash card. You can shoot forever and so many pictures on a camera and keep firing away. There is one thing I want to mention, though. I think there is something uh, about the flash of the camera. Mm. that uh attracts the phenomena more. It just seems like the flash I don't know whether it invites it in more, but I know that a lot a lot more people are capturing orbs and mists and things like that with the flash. Of course it helps to have the flash when you're in the dark, you know, otherwise you're not gonna see a whole lot. But I think there's something about the flash that's helpful. I was at a place called uh Cottage Grove Cemetery. It's not far from Weldon that we were where we talked about that levitation. I was on another job, at another area up there one time, and I knew about this old cemetery. And I stopped up there one time just to check it out. And not too much happened at all, really. And as I was leaving the cemetery, I thought, well, I'll take a couple more, you know, digital pictures, you know, with the flash. And it also helps to talk to spirits, I think. Hmm. And I asked permission of the ghost himself. I said, well, I haven't seen too much here, but I'm asking your permission. If you're here, could you give me a sign? And so I took like four or five photographs consecutively in the camera before I left. And right out front of the cemetery gates with the signs, says Cottage Grove Cemetery. And you can see in the first picture lights start moving towards the camera. Then the second mm-hmm. picture, more light. Like. By the fifth picture, fourth or fifth picture, they're unbelievable. There are thousands of them everywhere wow. and huge, I mean, huge basketball-sized lights glowing above the gate. And I've never gotten so many lights. Now, you have to be careful when you take pictures because, obviously, you can get false anomalies. So you have to watch if there's any wind picking up dust. Well, that night, there was not a speck of wind. There was no rain in the air. Rain and snow can create reflections. You know, off you can get reflections off of the flash. Especially snow will create a flash effect. But, again, we had a pristine environment, and because I asked uh, permission of the ghost, I think the ghosts do hear us, obviously, if we were doing a Ouija board seance Mm -hmm. with it, and it was responding directly to the Ouija board with physical phenomena, that was amazing. Obviously, they can hear us, you know, to some degree. So, um, But the camera technology is amazing today. And I I, I think that more and more people are picking up things, and because you can keep the cameras... On longer, you have more access to more cameras. And everybody has got, uh, you know, you know uh, a medium of shooting in the palm of their hand now with the right. cell phone. True. and uh, So that it makes it more ubiquitous. And everybody's got this technology now. And so more and more phenomena is being picked up and recorded. The problem is you have to weed through uh, the stuff that's out there because there's so many Photoshop things now. It's so easy to digitally enhance pictures and create effects and things. So you've got to be very careful with that aspect of it. And that's what I try to be, I try to be very careful. You want to make sure you're properly vetted. The thing is, if it's an individual that shoots something, okay, that's questionable because there's just an individual that can tell you about that experience right. and that's set of photographs or video. But when you have something that is... Uh, of a communal nature, when more and more people are percipients to the phenomena, then that's more impressive to me. But, uh, again, you have to, be going back to the five W's of journalism, the what, when, where, when, how, or whatever it is, you know, they say, you have to explore every little nook and cranny, use a journalistic approach um, every avenue, and go uh using the kind of, kind of taking a forensics approach to it, and uh, you have to be the same way with uh, not only the testimony of witnesses, but also but the evidence has been captured.
2: A lot of your work has uh, been featured on TV programs. Uh, you've covered quite a, a number of uh, paranormal cases throughout your career. At the top of the interview, you were talking about how back then with Jackie, you know, this was a topic that, you know, people weren't discussing openly. Fast forward to today, we have countless paranormal TV shows and uh, paranormal groups are popping up every day. How have you seen paranormal TV change? the paranormal research because I feel that a lot of times when people watch a TV show, they're kind of just getting the highlights. And I've been on several investigations where, you know, you kind of have to sit around a lot. And I feel like That may have given people a a false sense of what to expect when they go, you know, hoping to capture this type of evidence, but you as a a professional has been doing this for quite a while. How have you seen the paranormal change, you know, the way people think about ghosts and what their expectations are when they go out looking for haunted places?
3: Yeah, well, here's the thing, Uh, you know, there's a lot of television shows out there today, and... The only thing that kind of uh, I mean I'm, I'm not saying it's not a good thing I think it is a good thing it's good to have groups that go out and investigate things the thing that kind of irritated me you have to watch the all of the the, the follow through through the house and and then and a lot of times before a commercial break what's that what's that you know mm-hmm. oh, did you hear that it's almost like there's a director sometimes behind the things pulling the strings. <laughs> right. And, and they kind of hype it up a little bit. I'm not saying that all cases are like that, that they're always hyping it. Uh, but I, uh, you know, at least some. Some of it in questions in in my mind, you know, whether or not, to what degree directors are influencing some of these researchers. But then again, there's a lot of good researchers out there that are doing a lot of credible work and trying to get to the truth of the the matter. I'm um, all for research and uh, the only thing that uh, I, I would do get a little bit, uh, leery of is that when you see someone that goes out and every, it's almost like every time they go around a corner, they've gotten something or they've heard something or Mm -hmm. this and that. I have not had that experience where it's, Just that readily uh, happening all of the time. I I found it to be more of a uh, a guessing game, a waiting game. Mm -hmm. And boy, when something does happen, it can be really exhilarating. And it is really exhilarating when something happens. Right. But in my personal experience, I haven't found a a haunted house where I've walked into and it looked like Amityville and where things are flying around and Mm -hmm. you know uh, everything's happening all at one time. I found it to be a great waiting game. In the San Pedro case. That case went on for about a year and a half, and yes, there were incredible things that happened. There was the hanging, the levitation, the, there was uh, you know all these other things. But but it didn't happen all at one time. It was again, it was uh, the first night was pretty amazing because we did have a lot of things go on the first night. But that was rare. It's rare when you have a preponderance phenomenon happening all at one time. Again, there are places out there, I'm sure that can be a little more conducive to that, you know, especially the age of place, especially if there's been, I think if there's been a trauma like Gettysburg battlefields, a good place to go. I mean, there's been amazing things recorded there. Um, but again, I'm a little bit weary when someone goes into place and they try to, uh, it seems like every, every turn of the corner you're getting, what's that? What's that? You know, right. Some of these Bigfoot shows, you know, did you see that? Did you see, that? Rarely do you see it. You know, I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to see it. That's that's why when I go out in the case, uh, I will not put out anything unless I think it's got some kind of substance to it. Right. You know, some stuff to do it. And I think EVP is a real common way people are picking up a lot of things. And there's a lot of really good EVPs out there. Right. There are phenomenal things being picked up. I think that EVP. The language of V P B the recordings of V V P though, are a lot more in question because, as you know, a lot of things can get on the tape. Yeah. Uh, it depends on how pristine the environment is, you know, how controlled the environment is. That's why I really prefer the video medium because you, if you have something on video, there's a lot more uh, data there. You can actually see it and, you, and really analyze it from there. Not to say you can't fake video. Video can be faked. It's faked a lot, but it's a... You have a lot more parameters to work with when you see something on video, and but then again, I don't know. You know, again, there's a lot of good people out there doing yeah. a lot of serious research in the area, but I think a lot of it's a lot of it's copycat now. I think uh, so many shows that look like the other show I've seen, you know, but in the element that I'm reaching out for in my own personal work, I'm looking out for the best pieces of evidence. And recently, I found. I think, is one of the best pieces of evidence. Really? And that was just highlighted on a show that I produced called Case Files Unknown that aired on September 5th on the channel, on the uh, Destination America channel. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's been repeated a couple times, and I must tell you about this story. It is probably mm-hmm. the most interesting piece of documentation I've ever laid eyes on. We've got a officer police officer, a very credible police officer. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: His name is Officer Brian Coyle, and he lives in the St. Paul, Minnesota area. Uh, We were talking about cameras a little while ago. Well, this gentleman has been sitting on a series of photographs that were taken on film Mm -hmm. with flash back in 1984. And uh, so uh, you can do the math on that. How many years ago is that? That's about thirty years ago or so. So, yeah, um, you know, he had these pictures. We we heard about them. Um, uh, Victoria Gross, who was a, uh, a supervising producer on a show that we did years ago called My Ghost Story, we had heard about it uh, at that time. And she had a friend uh, named Echo Bodine, who was uh, a researcher who lives in that area, and she was writing a book about the soul and uh, and heard that someone at the police department in St. Paul had these pictures of a soul that was captured at a fatal crash site and when I first saw these pictures uh, well it just takes your breath away because you'll never see anything like them again Mm -hmm, I don't think it's very rare to find them. there was a young boy his name was John Boar and in 1984 he was on his way to a concert with a group of kids they were uh, going to a concert. Uh, unfortunately, it was a foggy night, and they slammed into a tree on a curvy road near... It was actually an etching road right near Highline Golf Course. It's a very wooded area. The officers, there were two officers, they were not far. They were less than a mile away. They responded to the call. And when they got to this location, the uh, I believe it was a jeep, they were... And, or not a Jeep, it was like like an SUV-type vehicle, I believe. Mm-hmm. It was slammed into this tree, and the gentleman took, uh, the officer, Coyle took photographs, processed the scene, and unfortunately, they found the boy had uh, hit the windshield on the impact, and it snapped his neck. So when the, after the scene had been processed, and this was like three or four days later, uh, Brian got a call from a police laboratory uh, that handled the photograph, the photo app. And they called him in and they said, Whoa, what the heck is this in your photographs? And he looked at the photos and he had not a clue. And you could see all these stridations, like streaks of white, mm-hmm. circumventing the crash site, coming all around the vehicle, circling the tree. Very bright whites, reds, greens, that kind of thing. Especially whites and reds, as I recall. Um, These little candy-stripe lights coming all the way around the tree. And there's a shot of the boy's uh, body uh, laying face down on the side on the front seat. And you can see these lines of energy, streaks of energy, emitting from his body. That's pretty incredible. But the most incredible photograph of all, you see a wide shot of the car. And just above the car is... In an enlarged shot, I mean, it looks larger than his normal head would look, but it's clearly the boy's face above the car materializing. Wow! He's looking down on the car, where the about where the body is, and he's screaming. It looks like he's he's looked like he's saying no. I, I, I mean, who knows for sure? But he's screaming. He's very very upset. It looks as if he's you know he's now out of his body. The soul is leaving the body. It's on his way whoever that afterlife is or whoever that dimension of reality is, Mm -hmm. and he's not happy about it. But he's got all these first five or six incredible photographs, but the best one is this boy's uh, face, and it's got the same hair, everything. It is the same uh, person who's lying dead in that vehicle, and he's peered over the car. It's not fuzzy. It's not indistinct. It's as clear as a bell. It's an amazing
2: picture. We actually pulled up the uh, pictures here from the uh, Destination America Facebook page, I believe. I got chills. I am not lying to you. I literally got chills uh, looking at these.
0: I think the pictures are on the Case Files Unknown Facebook page as well. Um, There's some of the um, striations that can be seen.
3: No, that is a fascinating case. uh, It really is. And and it's interesting because when the officer, I mean, when the body was taken away, the officer had, had other photographs. And they're completely normal. You know, he's got other shots of the car and everything. But once the body was removed, there was none of those streaks of wire or anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the scene. And so I just think he was just in the right place at the right time. The boy had just expired. And, you know, God knows why, but he got these amazing pictures. And I'm so glad you were able to see those pictures. They really are fascinating photographs. Mm, absolutely, yeah. So that kind of evidence I'm looking for when I go out.
2: Honestly anyone that browses uh, your um your credits on IMDb or looks up uh, your work on YouTube, some of the stuff that's on there. I think the consensus is, is pretty clear that you do seem to focus on cases that, as you said, have substance. I know you also did a documentary called California's Most Haunted. Obviously, the state of California is, is quite an interesting place with quite a colorful yet checkered history. And uh, you discuss many cases in that documentary. But one of the things that I, I guess I'm surprised if I may use the word to see absent is uh, anything on Bigfoot, being that you know Bigfoot is quite popular in the in the Northern California area. Is there a reason why you haven't uh, looked into Bigfoot, or maybe you haven't? I you know maybe it's just not listed in your credits.
3: Oh yeah, um, that's a good question. No, I I'm uh uh I didn't do that in California's most haunted because we mainly deal j- dealt just with haunting stories. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have not yet done a Bigfoot story. However, I am a believer in Bigfoot. Okay, um, I am a believer. I did go out on one hunt one time with a friend of mine named Bob Schott who claimed he had an experience in Central California, but I, I didn't see anything, not to say that there was anything to it, but after studying a lot of the research, um, I, I really I, I really believe that there's something to it because uh, there's just too many sightings by too many credible people for it not to be something mm-hmm. uh, real high stringer. The big question is, uh, you know, why they don't find a carcass or something like that. Uh, but, you know, who's to say maybe they bury their dead? You know, I don't know. Right. But I was I remember working news in Colorado um, uh, years ago back in the early 80s, and uh, some people found, uh, hikers found a plane, a single-engine plane that had gone down in the 30s with a skeleton inside of, a, oh, wow. of its pilot and i thought wasn't he? well, here it was 50 some years later and you know how big and fast uh, the uh, the pacific northwest is and in mm-hmm. uh, canada there's a lot of sightings in canada uh, so uh, who's to say something that can't hide out uh, and uh, it was very evasive for some reason and knows where to hide knows the best right. places to hide there is a case mentioned in canada that um, that really intrigues me there's a uh, I believe that Monster Quest may have done a story on it. It was very intriguing. There was a fishing cabin on Snell Grove Lake up there. Uh, in about, I don't know, maybe, uh, I would say this happened within the last uh, eight or nine years. The people that own the cabin, by the way, it's a very remote, uh, fishing lake. Uh, it's almost like an island up there. I believe you have to land on a, like, by mm-hmm. plane to get to the location. Uh, <laughs> they found their, uh, they found their cabin trash. Uh, and I believe they had food in the refrigerator of the cabin, uh, but it didn't look like uh, any signs of, uh, of bear a bear entry because a bear, fr- a bear could smell food through anything. Uh, they right. can rip up the top of your car if they feel that like there's a picnic basket in there. If they wanted to, they can open up like a <laughs> sardine can, you know. Right. But they, they, uh, they put out a. uh uh, a nail board with sc- a screw board with screws in it, and they put it in the front, and uh, they knew there was not going to be anybody up there. like again, it's remote, and they- it was not being rented out, and they know when somebody's gonna be up there.' It's the only thing on that island, I believe is wow. the northern Ontario area, and uh, they got a footprint, something put its foot down mm-hmm. on that. That nail board or that screw board, and it was about a twelve to fourteen inch foot. Wow! In length, that was very impressive. And I believe they took some DNA samples of that, and they still are not uh, certain. It's not not exactly an ape and not exactly a human. It's some kind of a cross between those two DNAs. Um, wow, that's I believe that's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's a good case because they took another crew up from LA. There, they took a camera crew up there. They set up everything. Mm-hmm. They set up. You know, infrared cameras everywhere. And and they thought, well, you know, they knew they had a pretty good location for Bigfoot. And, uh, again, even with all that equipment, it just reminded me of poltergeist cases because it was very invasive. Uh, they couldn't get anything on camera. When they set this up, they were up there for several days. However, however, the cabin in the middle of the night, was, even with all of those cameras set up, was pelted. By rockfall, strange rockfall hit the rocks were hitting the roof of this cabin. Oh wow! So, so do I believe that there's something out there? You bet! You bet I do. And there's a guy named Jeff Meldrum. He's a very, uh, very uh, good researcher in this field. I, I know he's written a number of books, and he's a, he takes a very scientific approach. And and um, there's a place up in Washington. I it's called Snookins Meadows, and they found really, really convincing footprints the evidence and they studied the epidural nature of the footprints and they're convinced that, that there's definitely got to be something to it. But why it's so invasive, that's, that's anybody's guess, but, is there something out there?
2: Absolutely. Well, we're on the topic of uh, cryptids, uh, you know, like Bigfoot. One of the phenomena that that I've heard a lot about, but personally, I find myself still on the fence a bit on is the uh, this issue of uh, Mothman, which a lot of people have claimed to have seen. Have you looked into this, and what have you found? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, th- do you think the Mothman phenomenon holds water?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely, I know this is going to sound strange. And all, all the stuff does. But right. i i grew up I grew up in southern Ohio when all of these things were happening back in the '60s. I was in high school then. There was a there was a, a documentary film that I shot that I have never released. Uh, there were a set of circumstances. It's kind of a long story to get into now. But I mm-hmm. did a I did a a a, a couple of shows back. In the early 2000s, it was called Monsters of the UFO. I, I covered a couple other famous old-time UFO cases, but the Mothman is something that, that I remembered uh, from reading the Cincinnati In- Inquirer newspaper oh. uh, on a daily basis. You know, before I go to school, that was just my thing. I read the newspaper and mm-hmm. go to school. Right. We didn't have the internet then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, there was a there was a creature, and I did a lot of investigation on this. There was a creature that was spotted on November 15th, 1966, kind of a lover's lane area. It's, uh, it's in a place called the TNT area. Mm-hmm. It's in a place called Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And Point Pleasant is a beautiful area. It's uh, if you go there today, you know, you look like you step stepped back a hundred years because the town is pristine. It looks like, uh, something uh, from the 1800s. And it's got mm-hmm. the old hotel there. and It's just an amazing place, but, wow. uh, there was a, two couples. The names... It was Linda Scarberry and her husband, Roger, and then there was Steve and Mary Mallet, I believe was her name. And they were uh, kind of just hanging out, cruising, you know, like a, along the Lover's or out in the outskirts of this TNT area. The, the TNT area, because they used to, the government used to make uh, dynamite in that area during World War Two, and there were these old uh, bunkers that's still out there that are abandoned. We used to keep stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. they came across because uh, I interviewed uh, Linda she's passed on now uh, I got an interview at her home years ago and uh, they were driving along and they saw this creature standing along the side of the road with wings and it's wing like caught in a guide wire that comes down from uh, say a telephone pole or something like that to the ground to the, the, the hold the, the pole to the, the give support the pole it was some kind of couple of guide wires it was like entangled in a guide wire now, at least it looked like the creature was kind of struggling there with this moving its wing back and forth in this wire. And they stopped the car. They didn't know what it was at first. And it turned and looked at it, and they had glowing red eyes. Wow. They immediately uh, made a quick U-turn, got on a highway. I believe it's Highway 62 there. It's a, it's a old country road. It goes back towards uh, Point Pleasant, which is a very small little town. And this thing suddenly came up behind them. It started flying after them. So apparently it didn't have as much of a problem with its wing as they thought. And it mm-hmm. came after them. But it was, again, it was a humanoid shape like a man. They really couldn't see the neck area. It was very, very dark. But they could see this, this uh, head with glowing red eyes. And it was the most terrifying thing they'd ever seen with a, a 10-foot wingspan. And it flew up to 100 miles an hour, kept pace with the car, and actually shot out in front of them at one point. Wow. And they saw it a little later on, sitting up on top of a billboard and stared down at them. Anyway, it sounds like a a cartoon fantasy, the story, but if you talk to the people and look back at what was going on, it's one of the most fascinating uh, things that I've ever covered because within. A year's period of time, from 1966 to December of 1967, over a hundred people reported seeing the same thing. Oh wow! Uh, in different situations, and this thing too could follow people at times. One man saw it standing in the middle of a cornfield, and it just shot straight up. It didn't make a sound. It just shot straight up into the sky. And um, one lady saw it looking in her window at night as she went to bed. And could see the wings and so forth were uh, illuminated enough from the inside window. And uh, there was a policeman named Alvie Alvie Sullivan. I believe he left. He had said he actually moved across to Gallup, Police, Ohio, because it it was so unnerving. And what made the story really unique and scary, super scary, is that there was not only sightings of this creature, but there was a, a whole plethora of UFO sightings connected with it. There were Hundreds of UFO sightings up and down the Ohio River Valley during that year's period. And a lot of times the UFO sightings coincided with sightings of Mothman. Oh, wow. And there was a gentleman, author named John Keel. John eventually came to write a book called The Mothman Prophecies. And it later became mm-hmm. uh, a movie uh, starring Richard Gere. It came out about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, it wasn't a uh, very. Uh, the movie was interesting from uh, standpoint of uh, the fact that weird things were going on at Point Pleasant, but it didn't get into uh, much about the UFO sightings. And I thought that was a really important part because John, when he went from New York down there, he started living with some of the families, uh, the, the witnesses. They let him stay there for, while, for several weeks or even longer, and he started doing firsthand research. and He never saw Mothman, but he saw dozens of UFOs coming right in at that treetop level and cruising down the Ohio River Valley and uh, and so forth. But this creature was seen, like I say, by over a hundred people. They all described it the same way. It flew at incredible velocities and it had the glowing red eyes. That seemed to be the, the main thing that people described with wow. the glowing red eyes. On December 15th, 1967, or actually I should mm-hmm. say December 14th, there were two men uh, coming across the old Silver Bridge, and as they were approaching the bridge at twilight, they claimed that they saw something roosting up on the uh, top of the bridge. It looked like a humanoid figure with wings and glowing red eyes, and it flew off the bridge at a, in a heartbeat. The next day... On December fifteenth, 1967, that bridge collapsed. Mm -hmm. It was a very cold time. I remember that weather being extremely cold. Uh, It it was probably 10 degrees, something like that at the time, close to zero. And um, uh, about 46 people uh, died. It plunged into the icy uh, depths of the Ohio River uh, during uh, the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Uh, No one ultimately knew why the bridge collapsed, but I think... The prosaic explanation was that it was a faulty eyeball in the bridge. But what makes it interesting is that the creature, the Mothman creature, was seen by these two truck drivers the night before sitting on top of the bridge. And it had been seen in abundance all that all that year prior, starting with November 15, 1966, by the Starberries and Mallet out in Point Pleasant. Mm-hmm. And um, after the bridge collapsed, the Mothman sightings sort of dissipated. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been other reports in other parts of the world, even in England, in several forests there where people have seen similar things. But for the most part, the sightings dissipated at that time. So the the question is whether or not it was some harbinger of doom, Mm -hmm. uh, harvester of souls, whatever whatever it is, no one really knows. I think John Keel called it an ultra-terrestrial. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the common term of extraterrestrial, where it's it's not necessarily something from outer space. It may be an occupier of a separate dimension that our of our own that uh, inhabits a quasi world of spirit, maybe half spirit, half something else that uh, no one has any explanation for. And as and so far we you know we we know I mean in the quantum physics that there are other dimensions of reality. At least that's what science is saying now. So who knows what inhabits these other realms, and is this some kind of a crossover from that realm into uh, our three-dimensional reality? I don't know. But it was one of the strangest stories because so many people were terrified. Mm-hmm. By when I when I spoke with Linda Scarberry, you could just see the fear in her eyes. You could just, you knew something had happened. and and she was uh, among that first group of people in that car who had been chased by this thing. Mm-hmm.
0: No, so, I remember reading a theory that, um, like you said, you know, the Mothman might be foretelling the future somehow. You know, it's been associated with several other disasters across the world. And I find it incredible that um, actually just last year there have been several reports in Southeast Asia, especially in Singapore, of the Mothman, which... I mean it's very strange, you know it's it's suddenly there's an influx of sightings um by various different people so I don't know wow, if we're in- into
3: that <laughs> no i will I will look into it I, I know there was a another kind of a weird phenomenon down in uh, mexico um uh, oh, over the last uh, fifteen years or so. I don't know about recently there was a uh, a thing called the flying humanoid sightings. They were, uh, these creatures. they have been videotaped mm-hmm. over certain villages in Mexico and near Guadalupe back about again, 12, 15 years ago. There was a police officer said he saw a, a creature, a flying creature of some kind that looked like an old woman, really like a witch. If you want to put it into a more simplistic terms, yeah. like a witch that was hovering and then suddenly. Flew down and landed on his patrol car in the middle of the night and tried oh, wow. to reach reach around and grab him with these terrible claws, you know, that kind of thing. But I've seen the video of him shaking. His knees and legs were just shaking. And they said he was a very credible officer. But other people videotaped those same kinds of things in Mexico, even that day of that sighting. Mm-hmm. So unlike Mothman, it, there was not any glowing red eyes. But there was a sighting of a female. Looking like moth man or moth girl, I guess you call it, in the, during the Vietnam War by several soldiers mm. right before a battle where a lot of people were killed. So getting back to that prophecy, uh, element to it, maybe it is some kind of harbinger. Who knows? It's really fascinating.
2: Wow, Barry. I, I mean, I, I hate it because I feel like time just slips uh, between my fingers here every time that we're lucky enough to have a guest like you that's so great and full of information and, and anecdotes and personal experiences. We could be here all night talking to you for the people that want to learn more about you and the stuff that, that you've covered in the past. Where can people go? Do you have a website or YouTube? Uh, any links like that?
3: Yeah, I believe there's a YouTube channel called Barry Conrad's Unknown Encounters. They can go to that, and my website that I really uh, have more or less for my uh, production work. I'm a professional director, of photography, cameraman. Is www.barconvideoproductions.com. That's Very cool. Www com,
2: And people also can get I mean, not only do you do uh, video work you you also uh, have a book out on the San Pedro Haunting called An Unknown Encounter a True Account of the San Pedro Haunting um, Can people still get this book on Amazon or anything like that?
3: Yes, yeah, it's available on Amazon and all they gotta do is just type in An Unknown Encounter A True Account of the San Pedro Haunting and they can find it easily on Amazon
2: You bet. Awesome. Barry Conrad was our guest. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. This has been a a, a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of spooky, if I may say so myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much.
3: (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. I I really enjoyed talking about these stories. And, uh, you know, the search for the truth keeps going on. And uh, I'm always looking to, to, if anyone else has has anything new in that area or has something they want to share, I'm I'm more than happy to to be able to talk with them and Mm -hmm. see what they got.
2: Well, hey, you know, I should send you a couple of videos I got of some weird orbs flying around me that actually remind me a lot of what you saw at the San Pedro haunting. I mean, it could be dust, it could be nothing, it could be something. (laughs) Maybe I'll Uh, I'll pass that along to you.
3: Okay, looking forward to it. Thank you so much.
2: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Barry.
3: Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Bye.
2: That was our interview with uh, Barry Conrad, paranormal uh, filmmaker, uh, producer of some uh, interesting programs Mm -hmm. that we definitely encourage people to uh, check (laughs) out. Like you mentioned, there's a YouTube channel out there. Um that being said we're gonna sign off uh, it was a really fascinating interview I hope that everybody enjoyed listening to that if you missed any part of it definitely check out the website WOTRradio.com during the week we'll be posting that as well as uh, having that up on our YouTube channel now so if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel do that uh, we have some interviews up there some videos some cool stuff and as always you can sign up for our podcast on iTunes Stitcher TuneIn Spreaker all that good stuff that being said as always I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter what's the Rocky on Facebook, Genevieve Viewway on Twitter. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. That's at WOTR Radio. And as I just mentioned, the website is WOTR Radio.com. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Enjoy this one. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye.
1: West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.